The text for our sermon this week comes from Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35, which is on pages 829 and 830 in the Pew Bible. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, with the verse 35 still ringing in our ears, would you grant that on both sides of this pulpit your word would be handled and received and understood and treasured and submitted to for what you declare it to be. Greater than heaven and earth, the word that will not pass away. I'm not sure I understand what that means, but I want to submit to it in every way as I preach, and I want my brothers and sisters to be eager to submit to it as they they worship you on their side of the pulpit. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant that those who are not yet your people would be converted even this day under the power of your word as the truth about you is made known in the power of the Spirit. And we pray in your name. Amen. Friends, we live in a very uh, dangerous age, an age of uh, very great peril. Um, And at one level, we understand that. We understand that the very air that we breathe, as well as the relationships we have, are capable of bringing dangers to us that destroy us. Uh, These dangers can enter our lives invisibly and almost imperceptibly and therefore be unrecognized, but their small uh, beginnings don't last long unless they are checked, the contagion of these invaders spreads. And not only does it overwhelm every part of us, but then the way it works is, and it always works this way, it not only overwhelms our system, as it were, but it then harnesses our entire system to reproduce after its own kind so that we become not only uh, recipients of the contagion, but we then uh, become a contagion ourselves and we spread it. I'm not talking about Ebola. I'm talking about a contagion that is far more deadly, far more lethal. I'm talking about an outbreak that has infected every continent and every nook and cranny and instant of history, and that left to our own power, we are unable to contain. I'm talking about a contagion, the least serious, the least serious of whose consequences is death. I'm talking about false teaching. As Jesus takes his last few steps toward the cross um, in 
in Matthew 24. He has a teaching agenda, really, across Matthew 24 and 25. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's the last extended block of teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it is the last block of Jesus' extended teaching uh, before his crucifixion, as Matthew records it, and its purpose is therefore very important for us to see. And it is, it has a focus about how to live between his first coming and second coming. His, his teaching agenda across these two chapters is to equip his disciples uh, to live, not, not merely to survive, but to thrive in the age between his first and second coming, which, in case you hadn't checked your calendar, is the age that we inhabit. So Jesus' teaching across these two chapters is very relevant uh, to each of us and will be relevant until his return. And his goal is to equip us to persevere in faithfulness to him through this age. And so as a result, there's a bunch of different critical strands in this block of teaching that he emphasizes over and over again. And this morning, I'm just going to pick one out. We'll do, the, we'll, do the, we'll do the rest of them in the next sermon. I know some of you actually believe that, but uh, we, we will. We will endeavor to do the rest of them in the next sermon. But this morning, I just want to pull one strand out because it's so important and so pervasive, and that's the strand of what Jesus has to say with respect to false teaching. And so this morning, we'll do that under three headings. Uh, first, the truth about false teaching. Secondly, the triumph of the truth. And third, treasuring the truth. We'll finish up with two pastoral implications uh, that grow out of what we do uh, earlier uh, in our study. So let's, let's think first about the truth about false teaching and just be very uh, sober about this. And and, oh, I just plead with you, do not think that this church is safe. Do not think that I am safe. Please. You know what Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 1? If we, speaking of himself, or an angel from heaven, should come and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received? Don't listen. Take this seriously. Take Jesus seriously. Let's just be clear about this from the beginning. Jesus never exaggerates a risk. Jesus never overreacts. Jesus' sense of urgency is in perfect proportion to the needs of the moment. He proportions everything that he says perfectly to reality as it really is, not as we might imagine or wish it to be. And in this passage this morning, he is moved by an urgency that none of us 
shares with him at the same level. It's an urgency about false teaching. None of us, let's just acknowledge that at the front end, none of us is as open-eyed to the dangers and the cruelty and the perversity and the wickedness of false teaching. None of us has our eyes open to that with the same clarity. And none of us is all the way in with Jesus on our jealousy about it. So we need to learn because the mind and the heart of Jesus Christ, and this is true for everything, the mind and heart of Jesus Christ are the true measure of reality. So what is false teaching? Well, let me give you a, a, a simple definition, then I'll expand it a little bit. False teaching is, is all teaching that is contrary to the word of God. But more specifically, and I think this is important because we're going to see how Jesus is the ultimate a measure of all false teaching, and he is the treasure of all true teaching. But false teaching is all teaching that is contrary in any way to either the words about Jesus in the 66 books of the Bible, which, by the way, would be all the words in the 66 books of the Bible, and or teaching that is contrary in any way to the words of Jesus. And what Jesus shows us in this passage is that false teaching, the truth about false teaching is that it's, it's, it's very widespread in the age between his first and second coming, and it's also warfare. So first I want you to see how Jesus emphasizes how widespread false teaching is going to be. Uh, and he was, he's proven right, has he not? I mean, 2,000 years ago, when he's addressing his disciples, He is painting a portrait of the age between his first and second coming. And he's saying this is an age that is going to be full of many false Christs and many false prophets. He says it at least three times. Verse 5, for many will come. I mean, this is amazing. Many will come in my name saying I am the Christ. an audacious claim that many will undertake. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verses 24 and 25, for false Christs, plural, and false prophets, plural, will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, And Jesus is saying, then he says in verse 25, see, I've told you beforehand. He's wanting to equip us pastorally. This is a very serious risk. So friends, we need to see that the risks of false teaching are equally real and they are equally lethal for each generation of the church. This is not just something that's limited to the first generation uh, after Jesus's uh, resurrection. False teaching, according to Jesus in this passage, is going to continue to spread on a large scale. Many false Christs, many false prophets, and with devastating effects until his second coming. And do you not see that? You see the same things I do. Beloved, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, the entire rest of the New Testament is full 
of warnings about false teaching. I mean full. This is, not, uh, this is not a theme that is isolated in one or two epistles. It is spread across the entirety of the New Testament. And when you see how the Holy Spirit has allocated the space, the real estate, the territory, if you will, of the New Testament and the, and the, uh, the prominence of this theme in the New Testament... The minimum we should conclude from that is that we need, to, we need to be very, very attentive to this subject. So our eyes need to be wide open. And what we discover when we think about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 is that, is that false teaching is warfare. You, you know, if you, if you just think about it as as it's just a mistake, it's an unwitting error or imperfection in our theology or in our belief structure. If that's how you think about false teaching, your understanding of false teaching doesn't line up with the way Jesus describes it here. He is describing it not, as, not in terms of uh, unwitting errors. He's talking about it as intentional strategies, False Christs who come to lead people astray. False prophets who come to lead people astray. See, this is intentional activity. What false teaching is, friends, is an act of sabotage. It's an act of kidnapping. It's a kind of spiritual kidnapping. It's spiritual terrorism. We don't think of it that way, but it is that way. False teaching, false teachers, false prophets, false Christ. Here's the agenda that is operating for them, according to Jesus. It is to lead people astray. And not just a little bit off. What Jesus is talking about is to lead them into hell. Away from the gospel. Away from the work of Christ. It is spiritual terrorism with eternal consequences. Its agenda, its design is to destroy lives and discredit and honor Jesus Christ in one fell swoop. You know, we're such good students about things like Ebola. You know, you watch the news now. How does a virus work? Well, a virus gets in. It's just a little thing, and it gets in, and what it does, it's you know, according to the news, you know, through evolutionary, you know, advancements, it figures out what the way a virus works is it comes in and it exploits the body's, the host system, and it turns the host systems into a virus producing factory. It's absolutely brilliant. It turns the host into a manufacturer of more of the virus. We're so smart about that, but when it comes to false teaching, we, we dismiss it. We don't think we're in danger. But Jesus describes it as warfare, my friends. The soldiers in this warfare are imposters. He calls them false prophets and false Christs. Isn't that interesting? They're not people who are atheists or presenting themselves as from another religion. They're false Prophets, they're false Christs. In other words, they're people who hold themselves out. See, see, it's people. Do you see that? It's not just bad doctrine. Bad doctrine comes through people. 
They're, and they're imposters, these soldiers. And these people, false prophets and false Christs, they are people who hold themselves out inside the church. That's why spiritual terrorism, I think, is an apt description. As God's messengers. And even, in some cases, as his Messiah. Now, that should not surprise us, right? I mean, we know that Paul says uh, that, that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and that in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen he says that his servants, speaking of Satan's servants who are the false apostles, his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So just because somebody comes speaking about Jesus does not mean that that person or the teaching that they are offering is safe. Are we okay on that? Do we understand that? See, this is the thing that is so dangerous about imposters is they traffic in counterfeits. That's the second thing. The weapons of false teaching are counterfeits. False prophets and false Christs traffic in false gospels. Rejections of the truth that disguise themselves as embraces or acceptances of the truth of perversions of the truth that masquerade as versions of the truth. And they they do the same thing that all counterfeiters do. They, They exploit familiar categories and familiar vocabulary and familiar shapes and familiar language, right? If you counterfeit a $100 bill, you do not make the mistake of putting George Washington's picture on it. You put Benjamin Franklin's picture on it. You use the same vocabulary, the same language. That's what Paul is warning about so urgently in Galatians 1. I am astonished. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There's only one. And everything else is a counterfeit. So it's soldiers are imposters. It's uh, false teachings. Uh, Weapons are counterfeits. What are the primary targets? They're inside the church. And you read the rest of the New Testament and you will see this. It is those who are inside the church who would be most vulnerable to the messages of the false prophets and the false Christ. And, And this is something that Jesus emphasizes very dramatically in verse 24 when he says to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That is absolutely staggering. So friends, already you should be saying, wow, maybe I'm more vulnerable than I thought I was. And what's the strategy in this warfare of false teaching? Well, in a word, it's satanic. The false teaching that Jesus is warning us against and that will continue until his return is not an accident. It's not just a mistake. It's a strategic plan that did not and does not originate with man. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I should have just had you keep your finger there uh, earlier, from earlier. But 1 Timothy 4. And I just, wanna, I just want you to see the first verse. And I forgot to tell you what page that is in the Pew Bible. Please forgive me. That's page 992 in the Pew Bible. So just look at what Paul says to Timothy. 
Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, now that's very interesting because what Paul is saying to Timothy is there are going to be people who are inside the church who are going to leave the faith because they came under the influence of demonic doctrine. Now, how did that demonic doctrine get to them? Well, it got to them inside the church. Well, did Satan and his minions and his servants show up not in disguise? No. They showed up disguised as servants of righteousness. Did you know that demons have doctrines? And did you know that demons teach doctrines? Of course you do. You knew that because you've read Genesis. You've read Genesis chapter 3. You know the first conversation, the first actual two-way conversation the Bible records is the conversation in Genesis 3 in which false teaching is presented and taught by the serpent and embraced by Eve. That's the actual first two-way conversation the Bible records. And it's been that way from the beginning. False teaching exists because the world is at war, and false teaching is the wartime propaganda of the greatest enemies of Jesus Christ and his people. You have to understand it that way. So its soldiers are imposters, its weapons are counterfeits, its primary targets are inside the church, its strategy is satanic, and finally, its casualties are very many. Do you see that again and again? This is, this is, this is something that has a devastating effect. The, the casualties are many. They will lead, verses 4 and 5, uh, or verse 5, they will lead many astray, and verse 11, lead many astray. And lest any of us imagine that we are safe from this danger or immune to it because we believe the Bible or because we love Jesus today. That somehow we are on the basis of our own good decisions or the church that we're in or the kinds of books that we read that we are beyond the danger of succumbing to false teaching. Lest we think that way, I want to encourage you to turn back to Matthew 24, and I want you to look at verse 4 again with me very carefully. Because Jesus is addressing his disciples. The disciples have now come to him privately, according to verse 3. The disciples came to him privately and asked him to explain himself. And notice the first thing that Jesus says to them in verse 4. These are his disciples, my friends, 11 of whom he is going to give to the church as apostles who are going to be the foundation along with the prophets of his church. Ephesians 2.20. And look at what he says to these foundation stones. See that no one leads you astray. Friends, if Jesus does not assume that his apostles are immune to the danger of false teaching, then how much more seriously 
does each of us need to take that danger? It is a sobering warning, is it not? But it's not the only thing that Jesus tells us about this age uh, between his first and second coming. It's not the only thing that Jesus tells us about false teaching in this age between his first and second coming because he also tells us very beautifully and wonderfully not simply the truth about false teaching, but he talks to us about the triumph of the truth. Look at verse 35 with me. I I just, this verse is just so, it's just staggering. It's, It's so big. Verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. I wish I understood what that means. I've been thinking about it all week. And the minimum that that says is that one day all false teaching will be brought to an end. All false teaching will fail. But Jesus' true teaching will triumph. His teaching will triumph. It will triumph first in history. And because it will triumph in history, ultimately it will triumph and must triumph in our hearts in the present it's a massive promise that the, you know, the heavens and the earth are going to be rolled up, are going to be rolled up like a, like a garment. They're going to be changed like, a, like an outfit of clothes. And what's going to remain is Jesus' words. Jesus' teaching. Everything that we think about as stable. I mean, you and I look at Mount Everest and we think you could never move that. That'll never change. And we look at the promise of Jesus or the command of Jesus and we think, can I really trust that? And what Jesus is saying is that one day Mount Everest is going to be gone. The Pacific Ocean is going to be gone. The Milky Way galaxy is going to be gone. It's just going to be rolled up. It's going to be rolled up like a change of clothes. And it's going to be replaced by the new heavens and the new earth. But you know what's not going to change? My words. Now Jesus is telling us, he's making a promise there about the way history is going to play out. And Jesus is promising us, friends, that one day, the day is coming when all false prophets, when all false Christs, and when all false gospels will be exposed and conquered and brought to their eternal end. And the only thing that will remain is is his teaching. He's promising that history is going to vindicate him. It's a massive claim. Why should you trust it? Because he went to the cross for you and for me. As we navigate our way uh, through this age, my friends, and away from uh, false teaching and holding fast to the gospel, we need to remember this future outcome. We need to remember the triumph, the future triumph of Jesus' teaching. If you want to be guarded against false teaching now, you, have got, you need verse 35. I need verse 35. We need to be reminded that it is Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching that is going to triumph. History is going to vindicate him. 
And we need to remember that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be filled with the proof of the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be about. They're going to prove the truth of Jesus Christ. The day is coming when all the noise and all the confusion and all the cacophony of these, of these competing, uh, conflicting voices, it'll all be brought to the end. It'll all be brought to an end. And what's going to ring in every corner of the new heavens and the new earth, there's one sound that is going to ring from one end of the new heavens and the new earth to the other, in every corner, in every nook and cranny of it. There's only going to be one sound. There will be no conflict. It will be the music of the gospel. That is what is going to play. That's the sound we're going to hear. That's the one message. Jesus' words are going to be proven true. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be filled, not with casualties, right? Not with casualties of false teaching, but with grateful and adoring and amazed, ceaselessly amazed beneficiaries of Jesus's teaching. That's what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be filled with. The words of Jesus that will never pass away, that we will be treasuring for all eternity. Jesus's words are not just a bridge then to get into eternity. They are the plot line of eternity. No worship in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth is going to be the fruit, our our response to the plan of God. You know, there's a demonic war plan to destroy the people of Christ and to lead people astray. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we are going to be celebrating. Our worship will be the fruit of heaven's gracious intention. (laughs) What was heaven's plan in response to the sin of men? You know what the heaven's plan was? It's such an amazing... Wow, it doesn't like that side. Do you know what heaven... Does it like this side? Let's test it, Clay. Okay. What heaven's plan... I think it's that mic. Okay. Heaven's plan was not to destroy life. It is not to destroy life. It's to rescue. Not to produce casualties but to deliver people from captivity. And you know what? You know what's so amazing about the plan? Is that that plan called for the king of heaven to use his crown on a cross. And for all and, th- and that's the substance of Jesus' words. Those words are either going to remind us of what was promised ahead of time and foreshadowed, or what, what he himself promised. Those words are going to remind us of what, what, what he fulfilled. Those words are going to remind us of everything that he accomplished. And it will all be about this king who used his crown on a cross for us. That's what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be full of. In verse 35, you know what Jesus is promising us, friends? He's promising us that the most wonderful words... The most beautiful story ever uttered in history. The most beautiful and wonderful story ever uttered in history is going to be proven to be the only story that ever was. 
the only story that there will ever be. The gospel is beautiful. If you don't feel that beauty, if you are not taken by the wonder of a king who uses his crown on a cross to rescue rebels, then you will not care about the difference between false teaching and true teaching. But if you are captivated by that beauty, and if you realize that that story was purchased, the truth of that story was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and that he is still inviting sinners like you and me to enter that story, to to put aside the fiction and to enter the non-fiction of the gospel, to put aside the fantasy of sin and the wartime propaganda and to enter into real life as it really is. Real life as it really is, my friends, is about a king who uses his crown on a cross to save sinners. That is reality. Everything else is a cartoon. When you realize that that is what is happening, when you realize only because the Spirit is teaching you and changing your heart, when you realize that there will be rising, you'll find rising up in your heart a love for the truth. And that that healthy embrace of the truth will protect you and will insulate you, but you'll need to keep feeding on it. But that all flows from Jesus' own promise of the future triumph of his teaching, my friends. He's going to win. There will be no other prophet but Jesus Christ. There is only one Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And history will prove his identity. That's the future triumph of the truth, but there's also the present triumph of the truth in our hearts. And I've kind of bled over into that section. Please forgive me. I get kind of carried away. You know, I do these outlines and they're like rigid boundaries between ideas. And then I start preaching them and the the levees all break. Okay, so, so... Okay, so the triumph of the truth, kind of two dimensions. Jesus sets that future triumph of his truth before us. That's the anchor, right? We need to trust him for that. I mean, why would you ever trust that promise? I mean, he sounds like a crazy man. He's either a crazy man, a liar, or he's God. It's the only way to explain verse 35. And what, what, what makes you, what draws you out to trust him is what he did for his people. Okay, And now in the present, here we are on this side of the cross. How is it that we now live until the second coming, uh, uh, protected against and rejecting false teaching and embracing true teaching? Well, here's, here's how I would summarize it. I would say that our no, uh, beloved, our no to false teaching, to all false teaching, will only be as strong as our yes is to all of Jesus' teaching. So your no to false teaching will only be as strong as your yes to Jesus' teaching. And every single yes 
by which our hearts embrace the truth about Christ is an echo. For the Christian, it's an echo of the, of the yes of Jesus' heart in embracing our crisis, in his willingness to embrace not only our nature, but also our need. The yes of our embrace of Jesus' truth is an echo. It's the It's derivative from Jesus' yes in coming to seek and save that which is lost. His yes to being incarnate. His yes to being born under the law. His yes to submit to sinners. His yes to fight temptation. His yes to fulfill the law. His yes to become obedient to the point of death. His yes to the cross. His yes to enter the tomb. His yes to resurrection and to bring his people with him. His yes to his exaltation and to pour out the Holy Spirit from heaven. Every yes of ours to the truth about Jesus echoes his yes for us. You see, if you only think about this as an intellectual issue, you haven't gotten it. And I'm afraid that's how we think about false teaching. We think about it as a like just a rigidly doctrinal thing. And believe me, if, you know, if you've talked to me for longer than two seconds, you know how much I love doctrine. But I love doctrine because I love Jesus. And friends, our willing and, re- and zealous rejection of all false teaching is the echo of his willingness to be rejected in our place on the cross. The the line between true teaching and false teaching is about the gospel. You, you know, the cro- it's the cross, really. You, you know, at one, at one level, what, what I'm talking about with you is the, is the preciousness uh, of the triumph of orthodoxy in our hearts now in the present. But what is it that gives life to orthodoxy? What is it that would make you want to be orthodox? What is it that would make you want to believe only the truth and to to reject the false teaching? What is it that really compels your heart? What is it that makes you jealous for the truth and, and hateful toward lies? What is it ultimately but the cross? I mean, I am totally convinced that the cross is the center, the life-giving center of all orthodoxy. There is no power for orthodoxy apart from the cross unless your heart is controlled by the love and glory of Christ that are displayed on that cross. You will not care about true doctrine. The cross is the center of every... Every theological subject has to go through the cross. There is no theological subject. There is no belief that makes up Orthodox Christian belief that is not defined in some way by the cross, that is not anchored by the cross, that does not ultimately point to the cross or flow from the cross. The cross is the measure of all false teaching. If you want to evaluate another religion, if you want to evaluate any teaching that masquerades as Christian, 
Friends, don't spend time on the periphery. Go right to the cross. What do they say about the cross? And I guarantee you, it will always expose, the biblical vision of the cross will always expose the key falsity of the teaching. Does that surprise you, given what Satan was trying to do? What was the focus of Satan's temptation of our Lord in the wilderness? Anything but the cross. cross is the measure of all false teaching and the way you, it's the gold standard and the way you know all true teaching is the cross will be its treasure think about the cross why why do you love the truth well friends I love the truth about Jesus because I love his cross And I love his cross because of what his love undertook and accomplished for me there. And not only for me, but all who trust in him. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, squeezes us, presses us, hems us in, imposes boundaries on us. For the love of Christ controls this. Well, why, Paul? Because we have concluded this. In other words, Paul's saying, here's why the love of Christ controls me. Because I think about that. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. See, he's thinking about the cross. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died, who for their sake died and rose again. In other words, Paul, there's this vision of life for Paul that, that is controlled by the cross. And that is no less true when it comes to what we believe and what we reject. Our confessions Our theological affirmations are controlled, or should be, by the cross. Do you know what Paul's teaching us about the cross, my friends? He's teaching us that every single truth about Jesus Christ is so objectively precious. So objectively precious that it should be the eager labor of our hearts the labor of love of each of our hearts to prepare as much room as we can possibly prepare to receive as much truth about Jesus as we can possibly receive by God's grace. To hold that truth, to to treasure that truth intellectually with our minds. Because the truth about Jesus Christ is so precious that we want, it's treasure, Right, And we want it in our minds. We want our thought lives to be transformed by the treasure of the truth about Jesus. But not just intellectually, but also our hearts, right? Uh, In terms of our affections and emotions, we want the truth about Jesus Christ to, to capture us here. Like I could stand before Half Dome in Yosemite and say, well, the dimensions of Half Dome are such and such, and it's approximately so many tons and all that kind of stuff. And I could give you accurate facts, but unless, if I do that just in my head, but unless I go, wow, I have lied about Half Dome. 
unless there is the response of the heart. It's a lie. And that is so true with the truth about Jesus. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? So intellectually, emotionally, then also volitionally, our will. We want the truth about Jesus Christ to capture our wills, to subdue our wills. You want to be guarded against false teaching? You have to love the truth. You know, theology, it gets a bad name. But you know what theology is, my friends? Theology, theology, I'm talking about true theology. Theology is the love language of Christian discipleship. Every true belief is an act of love. It is a bride's embrace of her beloved bridegroom. It is a cherishing by the bride of her beloved bridegroom and all the truth. And true theology is the gift of Jesus Christ to his people. And it is the food of his people's love for him. It is the love language of our discipleship. Friends, we should care about the truth with all of our hearts because that truth gladly took the form of a Savior who was willing to bear our sins in his body on the tree so that we might bear his glory for all eternity. Unless the love of Christ is controlling your heart, you will not care about orthodoxy. Orthodoxy will be hollow. It will not be the love language of your uh, Christian discipleship. You won't even hear the truth as Jesus' love language over you, which it is. Because the truth of the gospel is the expression of Jesus' love and fidelity to you. But I want you to see that this love must be echoed back, right? Every true belief that we hold and that we utter is an act of love. It is our, it is our pledge, our happy pledge of fidelity to our bridegroom. It is not simply an intellectual exercise. Please think about it in terms of love. And I think it will look and feel differently to you. So now let's just think in closing about two pastoral implications. Okay, one has to do with um, officer nominations, which I've already touched on the surface. The other has to do with the role of the Bible in our lives. You knew that was coming. So don't act surprised. But officer nominations, I've already told you what I believe to be true about the offices, that the offices themselves are expositions, as it were, of Jesus' ministry. So I don't need to, I don't need to uh, belabor that point. I simply want to reinforce this, that if that's true, then, and if the danger of false teaching is real, and if... If the greatest defense against false teaching is a good offense with true teaching, if the best way to identify counterfeits is to make sure that you are a diligent student of the genuine article, if that's true, then it is utterly essential for us to see the, 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 the offices of elder and deacon as gifts of Jesus Christ 
to his church to safeguard the truth. To safeguard the truth about him. To safeguard the truth about his words. And you and I should only be nominating men who are to these offices who are already guarding the gospel. Who are men whose beliefs are acts of love unto Jesus Christ. And we should want those kind of men as deacons and elders because we ourselves desire to be guarded by that very same gospel. So don't look around and say, who looks like they have abilities? Who looks like they're competent? Who looks like they have the skills? That is not what the Holy Spirit describes in 1 Timothy 3. Look for a man or look for men who are guarding the gospel, who know the gospel, who love the gospel, who own the gospel, who sing the gospel. So that's officer nominations. But then there's scripture alone and the role of the Bible in our lives. You know, it's Reformation Month. And during the Reformation, one of the mottos or battle cries, if you will, of the reformers uh, was the, the motto, Scripture alone, or in Latin, sola scriptura. And it's a very precious motto and um, captures a very important principle. Um, and again, here we go, right? I mean, you and I have heard it said that the best defense is a good offense and that the best and really only way to train somebody to identify counterfeits is to train them to study the genuine article. Well, when it comes to false teaching, I have to state it even more strongly. The only defense is a good offense, and the only uh, way to identify counterfeits is to study the truth. And there's no way around it, friends. You and I will not be equipped to identify and reject false teaching except to the degree that our lives are immersed in God's word. There's no way around it. Because the Jesus you love is the Jesus who is given to you through the scriptures. The teaching of Jesus that you protect and cherish is the teaching of Jesus that you are given by the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. And so this is this whole idea of what is the role of the Bible in your life. The reformers believed in Scripture alone, and what they meant by that was that God's Word, given to us in the 66 books of the Bible, was to be recognized and submitted to as the supreme means by which the Lord Jesus Christ ruled in His church and over His people. In other words, the, the, the standard of authority that Jesus wants us to yield to is the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. You might say, well, we believe that. Well, we might say that we believe it, but we need to unpack it for a minute and understand what it means. A Scripture alone means Scripture alone. What I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit speaking in God's written word is the supreme authority that the Lord Jesus intends to inform, instruct, and bind our consciences. 
Well, you can't have an instructed mind unless it's instructed by the Bible. You can't have an informed mind unless it's informed by the Bible. And you can't have, uh, you are not supposed to have your conscience bound to anything except God's word. So what that means is that all other authorities, my friends, to which we might look in the Christian life, must take a back seat and be subordinate to the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. It's the scriptures that measure the legitimacy of all other authorities. And what I'm talking about is things like this. I mean, what other kind of authorities are you talking about? Well, what about tradition? What about confessions like the Westminster Standards, which I love? I mean, I love the Westminster Standards. But they're not scripture. They are human documents. Their author is men. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, all of which I have tattooed on my back. No, just kidding. I love them, but they are beneath Scripture. I once had a friend tell me, a professor at Covenant Seminary, he said, Mike, the Westminster Standards are just an advertisement for the Bible. So is every book you read by your favorite Christian author. So is every sermon you hear from your preacher of choice. So is every uh, talk you hear. So is all, all these things. They are subordinate to the voice of God speaking in the Bible. If they are not, my friends, traditions are subordinate to Scripture, right? Your private impressions and spirits, I think this is a really big thing for people. People will all the time say, God told me this. Oh, be careful. Be very careful. I've had people tell me that God told them things that I know he didn't tell them because they were contrary to God's word. God does not contradict himself. And the Westminster Confession, which itself is subject to Scripture, says that all private spirits of men must be judged by the Scriptures. And you cannot do that unless you're reading your Bible and thinking about it. Elders, authors, your own conscience, all these things take a back seat and are subordinate to the Bible. The Christians, every Christian's favorite author should be the Holy Spirit. Can I just say that? Every Christian's favorite preacher should be the Holy Spirit. So Scripture alone means Scripture alone, but, and you knew this was coming because it's Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, Scripture alone does not mean Scripture alone. What do I mean by that? I mean that Scripture alone does not mean me and my Bible alone. That's not what that means. That's not what the Reformers meant by it. It's not how you're going to be safe against false teaching. In fact, that is how Mormonism started. Me and my Bible alone. That's how Joseph Smith went down the trail into Mormonism. Him and his Bible alone. That is not safe. You cannot cordon yourself off from all other input 
from all other instruction, from all other correction. And we know, we know that Scripture alone does not mean you and your Bible alone or me and my Bible alone. We know it doesn't mean that because it's very plain when you actually look in the Bible that the Bible teaches us that, that Jesus Christ or that, that Scripture itself envisions that Jesus Christ is going to govern his people and mediate his authority over his people in his church by his word at multiple levels. First, he's going to do it through the individual's uh, interaction with the scriptures. But th- and that's true. But that's where most people stop. And you can't stop there if you want to be safe from false teaching. There's a second level, which is that Jesus exercises his authority through his word as we are embedded in a community, the present community of his church. So you and I adhere to scripture alone to the extent that we are listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. And sometimes, sometimes we're taught how to listen to it and to recognize it through the teachers and the pastors and the leaders and the officers that Jesus himself has given to his church. And then there's a third level, which is historically, which is to recognize that Jesus speaks, has spoken to his church through the voice of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures across the ages. And there are things that our brothers and sisters in ages past have learned that we need to learn to submit to. See, here we are in a PCA church, and we will regularly bring out the Westminster Standards, which were written in the 17th century. Now, who gave those guys, 350-year-old guys, a vote at our table? Well, to the extent that what we find they say was consistent with the scriptures, they have been given that voice through the Holy Spirit. And to the extent it is consistent with the scriptures, we need to recognize that gift of the Holy Spirit to his church, and we need to yield to that faithful exposition of the scriptures. So friends, if you and I want to be guarded against false teaching and we want to live well and thrive in the age between our Lord's first and second coming, we need to know the truth about false teaching. We need to know the triumph of the truth. For our Lord who presides over us and provides for us and protects us is the one whose word will never pass away. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that you will fill our hearts with a love for your truth because it is your truth and that our we would see our um, our beliefs as acts of love first as, as your gifts of love to us and then in response as we confess them and submit to them our acts of love rendered unto you and we pray in your name Amen Thank <clears throat> you.